Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Hi, this is Chris West-West, the Pontificator, and I welcome you to When Humanists Attack interview with Robert Anthony Gibbons on Why Has It Taken So Long for Black Lives to Matter? Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate that. We're really glad to have you, and thank you for taking the time out uh, to spend time with us and share with us your experience. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I'd like to just, you know, pay honor and homage to my mother, Dorothy, to my father, Robert, to my grandmothers, Versi and Maddie, and to my grandfathers, Sammy and Jethro Robert. Thank you. That gives us a good lead in because we want to start off just by asking you about the things that make you who you are now. What's your history? Where did you start? Where were you born? Tell us a little about that. Well, I was born on the southern shores of Lake Okeechobee, a little town called Bell Glade, Florida. Um, it is in the backdrop of Palm Beach. More people are familiar with Palm Beach, the glitter, the fame of the beach and the wealthy and the elite. But I grew up in the most western part of the county. If you go out Lake Okeechobee, all the way out to the end of Lake Okeechobee, Okeechobee Road, as we call it, that's where Bell Glade is. My understanding is, is that's a very specific kind of a place because in the 1920s, the government engaged in a process of draining the swamps around the lake yeah. in order to provide new places for agriculture. Yes. My grandparents came from Georgia. And if you understand the migrant history of the United States, they, they moved on the migrant trails in search of work. So that's how they ended up in Bell Glade. And they actually resided there my entire life. So I did have a great grandmother that I knew. She lived right across the border from Tallahassee, Florida, in a little place called Bainbridge. But even in the summertime, my grandparents would follow the migrant trails back to Georgia and work in the cornfields in Southern Georgia. I know because I did it alongside with them. Until so what age were you actually working in the fields with your parents? At least until 13 and 14. And I want to tell you, Chris, I had so many nightmares of corn and celery. And I mean, it was just so overwhelming. But my grandmother told me, she said that, your great-grandmother, Minnie, is going to lose her house. So we have to go to Bainbridge, Georgia this summer, and we have to help her. And you're the only one that will help me. And my brother was much bigger than me. He was much more mature, much more athletic. But the Florida heat and the Georgia heat was just so overwhelming. When he did enter the fields, he couldn't, he couldn't take it. I mean, my mother would tell me to get up 6 o'clock in the morning to cut the grass because that by 8 a.m. it's 103 degrees. So you can imagine enduring that Florida heat in the fields all day, especially during high noon. I would like to share from, from close to the tree. Hook. My grandmother would take us across the Georgia line every summer 
as if we were migrant workers traveling the back roads from Okeechobee to Tallahassee through chicken coops and fruit stands and the elements change from tropical to deciduous, from dirt to clay, from corn to tobacco to corn, winding the black bottom. She would batter, dressing them in flour, smothering them in her power, placing them in rectangular pans, covering them in aluminum foil, the toil of the gravy, packing them in her beige Buick, the Florida sun through it. She knew, she did not tell. She clears her mind of doubt. She held the stirring wheel, shifting it to the right, making it there before dark. Thank you. Your family comes from migrant workers. Yes. And they moved from Georgia into yes. uh, middle Florida, I guess they call it, Belle Glade. Yeah, but Belle Glade was a total segregated place. I lived on the black side of town. Everybody I knew was African-American and we did know other people of other races and other nationalities, but they didn't live on our side of town. Belle Glade was segregated by Main Street. And so other people lived on the other side of town and we lived on one side of town. And um, Belle Glade was segregated my entire life. High schools were totally segregated. Stores were totally segregated. Everything I experienced in my life was total segregated. And that wasn't, so, I'm not saying that to make it bad, but it, it limits you. It's, it's a narrow way of understanding and tolerating other people or other people understanding who we are and where we came from and what our traditions are because most of the other people attended private school on the other side of the city. Uh, I looked at the statistics just earlier. Mm -hmm. Right now, migrant workers in where in the town you grew up in are making $25,000 a year and they're working their, their butts off to make exactly. just that. Exactly. So How no about five cents a box? And my grandmother was dignified. I mean, she was a dignified woman she was the supervisor of the corn truck. That's how I know about the corn fields. Because she was in supervisory position, she could bring me and my brother along if he could last. You know, so I would learn the, the machination of packing corn. And at that time, it was only five, five cents a box. And so you see people on the corn truck packing 1,000, 1,200, 1,500 bo uh, boxes of corn to make the money they could. Total peonage, total, total plantation system, you know, yeah. owned by large farmers. They never intermingled. We never knew. We never had a, a history, but we had pride. We had spirit. I had a grandmother that was very glorified. She was a religious woman, but she would take me to Georgia during the summer and she would take me to the burial grounds of my ancestors. And she would tell me, this is your great grandfather, John Hanford. He walked from a plantation from Virginia here to Georgia. We grew up behind the levee plantation. So we might have been related to them. So she was building this history. She was building this energy in me. And I feel like I'm the barrier and the carrier of this history because it was not informed in school. There was no pride in, in not only African-American history, but Native American history. The, the names Okeechobee and Loxahatchee and Appalachian and Pahokee, all of those names, we had no knowledge. 
We had no knowledge. You know how knowledge is power. So we had no history. And so this is the type of life that I've tried to create as a poet and writer to bring this history, to elevate the glaze and what the glaze, the, imp the, the, the terrible impact, but also the prideful impact that is made on my, my, my background. The title of this poem is called Home. And it has the epigraph by James Baldwin. The epigraph says, any writer, I suppose, feels that the world into which he was born is nothing less than a conspiracy against the cultivation of his talent, which attitude certainly has a great deal to support it. On the other hand, it is only because the world looks on his talent with such frightening indifference that the artist is compelled to make his talent important. James Arthur Baldwin. Home. Who said we did not receive the death penalty at birth? Our skins bruised by the Florida sun. It is a race and a bean field, a trace and a sugar meal. And yet we are under control and submission. The dead beat and the dark feet ones that dangle with arms of machetes and you still do not understand there are no glades day for us, only night and purple stalks and pink ghettos and blue stores. And there are urinals on the outside, tribunals for the smallest crime. And there was no equality on the other side of Lakeshore. And I'm not sure I know 50 died with arthritis and 50 more on the dialysis machine, but all excuses are nailed to the cross, said the preacher. Well, I do not believe everything the preacher says. I had to learn on my own, and this is not easy. I know segregation. Beautiful. Your family right. and the people around you are saying, we're not gonna let you erase us. Yes, and that's, 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 that's the legacy that I wanna live. And I wanna say one other thing, Chris, because I've never really, been involved in an interview like this. And I appreciate that. I appreciate you asking these questions because Bill Glade has really been the hand-me-down of the county. Of course, you know about glittering um, Palm Beach and West Palm Beach and, and, Jupiter. and, and Jupiter, Florida. And, and, and our mayor Bloomberg has a $10 million compound in Wellington, Florida. All of those places are in Palm Beach or the beauty of Palm Beach will be Palm Beach, but Boca Raton will be better, you know, and all that kind of wealth and glitter and, and, and all the kinds of things that you hear over the years about Palm Beach County, but you never hear about the Glades. Never. You never hear about Bell Glade, but we were always sent the hand-me-downs. We were always had the last in the in in the in the coffers, the treasures, the educational treasures. Teachers uh, had to come to Bell Glade. I'm talking about teachers of other color had to come to 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 Bell Glade to 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 get their bones, if you know what I'm saying, to get break in, if you if you get what I mean. And yep. and and it was it's 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 a struggle. So we always suffered. My community always suffered. It was a big thing that I was fortunate that I had a mother that was a teacher. So our street had a sidewalk but most streets didn't. Tell me a little more about your mother's role in the community as a teacher and, and more importantly, the influence that had on you. Well, uh, my mother went to a little 
uh, HBU, as we say, historically black college in, in South Carolina. My mother had seven brothers. And so of course my grandfather was insistent that everyone work, but because my mother was the only girl in that family, he had a liking for her. He, he was very interested in her pursuing a, a, a college education. So out of her seven brothers, my mother was the only one that had that opportunity to go to college. So she ended up in this little school called Allen University, where she met my father at Benedict College. And both of those colleges are historically black colleges in Columbia, South Carolina. And so that's where they met, but she did have this fortune to come back and educate her children and, and stress the importance of education to us. She would sing to us and read to us and she's, she exposed me to Langston Hughes. So she, she would read to us early and, and encourage and write letters on the walls and words and make sure that we were, would give us as much as we can in the limited environment that we grew up in. And, and she knew. She knew how limited it was, but she tried her best as most teachers did at that time for me is expose us as much as we could. Your mother came from very little and through the sacrifice of her family was able to get a degree at a historically black university. Right. And instead of going to a large city, right. instead of going to another place, she right. decides to go home. Yes. She decides to go back and well, give back to, to the home. community. Yeah. She became pregnant with me at Allen University. My father was at Benedict and they had to get married because at that time, the mm -hmm. strict background of my grandparents, but they both did finish college. They both became teachers. And um, it's just a interesting side note. They're in their seventies now. And after many years of separation, they finally come back together and they're trying to rekindle that love and that makes me feel so good because I'm their oldest so they're coming back together Robert and Dorothy are finally trying to get back together and that's very sweet yes so tell me about your your siblings I just want to know uh, I think my experience as one of three and my experience with other people who are only children the number of siblings you have can have a pretty big impact on right on how you turn out as a person yeah, I have one brother and three sisters. One passed away in 2015. There are four of us left. My brother Carl, um, my sister Natasha, and my sister Latangela. And all of them are education, or educators or, or in the education field. So that idea of giving back to the community was really instilled in us. And I've taught back and forth on the college level and the high school level, but I'm a poet. So, yeah. yes. Yeah. So the background is clear. You, yes. you have this very strong, very proud family behind you in this right. impoverished place where right. as a, a pair of teachers, your, your parents right. would have had some status, I imagine. Yes, yes. I lived on a street where the sidewalk is very, very important. That's why I brought the sidewalk up. The owners that lived on those streets had to pay for that sidewalk to be installed in Bell Glade. And so teachers and firemen and morticians and all of those kinds of people lived on my street. So my street was very significant because I could walk to the elementary school where my mother taught, which was right up the street. And she taught there for 35 years as a third grade teacher. She would take us to West Palm Beach. She would take us out to dinner. We would go to restaurants because she was constantly a teacher. It was not 
something that she just did in the classroom for a job, but she modeled this. She modeled this type of behavior because she wanted her children to know that there's a bigger world and there's a better world out there. But we were so far west to Lake Okeechobee that we had those back roads. The back road to US 27 led to the back way to Fort Lauderdale or led to the back way to Miami so we could get there quicker. But those trips were big trips for us. You know, those were big time trips because we were going to the city. So she would take us and expose us. She would, she, she gave me violin lessons. She, she made sure I had piano lessons. She, she made sure I read. She made sure I ate three meals a day while working on her graduate degree. And she had five children and we had a very, very strong family because my grandmother would take care of us while my mother was in graduate school at night. So there were so many wonderful things, but then there was, there were so many oppressive things growing up in a segregated plantation-like system. All we knew was the sugar mill. That was the big industry in Belle Glade. And most people we knew, my uncles, my cousins, family, friends, everybody that I knew, they had some kind of connection to the sugar mill. And all we knew, it was the famous Wedgeworth family or the hand family, the wealthy millionaires that owned these companies, you know, Big Sugar or all of these kinds of places that own the sugar, but we experienced none of the economic glorification of that, only the peonage. The next poem is called Florida. All these years, we have this love-hate relationship And as a child, I played hide and seek among your cherry bushes, squirting red pepper into my eyes, eating of your divine sunshine. Now my mouth salivates as I bite your navel. I suck every juice from your citrus. I still nibble your breast as rotund, as profound as grapefruit. And I claim you as grand matriarch. Your civil locks remind me of moss near the border as I ride your Biscayne Bay Road in search of myself, the promise to leave, but your roots are too deep, the longing for you too steep. Now my eyes water for Jacksonville's spine, each curve as old as the Spanish ancestors, as primitive as the doubloon, the little red schoolhouse that gave me birth baptized me from the fountain of youth, kissing Tampa Bay's mouth, intersecting the skyway. You, the Southern woman, the eight hour ride down your orgasm from Tallahassee to Miami, from deciduous to tropical, from heat to hotter. I wanna take my clothes off in a topless ghoul night. I'll stop there. I love it. One of the things I, uncovered when I was doing research was that Edward R. Murrow did a documentary on Belglade and it's called The Harvest of Shame. I haven't seen it yet, but it was the last documentary he did before he left the CBS Mm -hmm. and it shook the country up. It was one of those aha moments where someone in a position of privilege uses that privilege to uncover some of the injustice that the system was actively putting in place and was going to be continuing to put in place even after the civil rights movement. This movie was made in 1960. This is eight years before the civil rights legislation was passed. That's amazing. So deep Jim Crow still happening right then and there. 
Yeah. And I bring that up partially because I think that it's a good idea to watch. Just, I mean, you said when you heard about it, wow, I'd love to see what my town was looking like back exactly. then. But I just want to point to this being another moment where white America was given an opportunity to look at the way that we were treating a group of people. Exactly. And there was a bit of a, a outrage right. when that was shown, but that outrage and moved on and, and forgot yeah. about it. Yes. One incident happened in my entire life that always come, come back and, and I tend to just get so sad and emotional about it. And it's that my mom wanted me to have piano lessons so bad. And so she located this teacher on the other side of Main Street, a wonderful piano teacher. And, and right now, I don't remember her name. I'll call her Miss Connor. So Miss Connor, the piano teacher said, yes, Robert can come. He's a very precocious young man. He can come and take piano lessons. And so my mom would regularly take me to her house, drive me to the front door, wait for me to go in. And one day, her husband had not met me yet. I had been taking piano lessons with Miss Connor for like six months. And her husband had not met me yet, but he took her into that back room and he said, if you teach that N-word piano lessons, you're done. I heard it. I went back home and told my mom, but she never responded to me because I was very small. She never responded about it, but I never went back to that teacher's house again. And I thought the woman was a wonderful, wonderful educator and exposing me to piano lessons at a very early age. Cause I clearly, I was like four or five, you know, and I want, and I had this gift for music. Eventually I, I, I began to take up saxophone or violin, but I did have a gift for music. And so that kind of stopped that right there. I know that, that you said that your parents are very religious and grandparents are very religious. What was going on inside of you, the the understanding of your relationship with your parents and relationship to to your belief as you got older and realizing that you were gay? Right. That is, Chris, that's the hardest, that's the hardest conflict that I've come in contact with in my entire life. And that's the whole idea about religion and how religion dominates and, and dominated the very atmosphere of where I came from, you know? So there was church on Wednesday night, there was church on Friday night, there was church on Sunday, there was church on Sunday night. And my grandmother, again, the, the matriarch that she was, she was big in the church. So she required that we attend church with her all of those nights. So I grew up in a very strict apostolic Christian, which cut themselves off from the world. You know, it was the dress style. It was no, no drinking, no smoking, no jewelry, no makeup. It was that type of background. I came from a strict religious background. So it had a deep impression on how I viewed the world, especially with the undergirding of the sexuality hidden beneath all of this. You know, the fear, the secrecy, the, the lying to cover up who I really was. There was never any liberation for me. My first time experiencing a gay club or being with a group of gay people was when I went to college. So there you have it, you know, that I, I 
I didn't even know things like that existed. That's just how my parents tried to keep us innocent, but also keep us separate from everybody else. Tell me if I don't mind me being a bit probing right. about developing your sexuality as a, a gay black man in Belle Glade in high school. Yeah, it was hell, Chris. It was it was hell. That's why I had to hide it from my parents. And my mother would often question because she was an educated woman. So she wasn't dumb or, you know, she wasn't far behind. She had been off. She had come to New York. She had, you know, my father, my father grew up in New Jersey. So she had been in New York with him. She had been places. She had seen things, but she, I guess she wanted me to open up on my own. And then she had this kind of protectiveness where she just really wanted me to verbalize it. And I never would. I lived a very sad middle school and high school life, even into college when I even began to open up and liberate myself a little bit, it was still difficult. And it, I, I don't want people to un think that it has to do with my parents because it did not. It had to do with the environment I grew up in. It had to do with, with no exposure to nothing, to no culture or anything like that. Nobody that I could look at it as a role model. So I had to create this whole persona within myself and lie and bury the secrets that entire time. She knew, I think, and, and people knew, but they would never speak of it because I was their child and they would never, I was, I was my grandmother's first grandchild. So she was a very religious, very stately woman. So they wouldn't address it, but people knew, you know, it wasn't a hidden secret, but in the black world, you know, it's, 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 a, it's complicated. That's the, yeah. that's the only word I can use for that. Yeah, because you have this very strong, deep religious founding and foundation. Yes. yes. But you also have these people that you know are gay. Yes. And in the you church, love them. In the, school, in the community, in the this, in the that. Yes. But you can never, ever talk about it. Yep. You know? I remember uh, I went to high school in uh, Harlem in New York City in the late 70s and early 80s. And I remember the senior year, mm -hmm. the last month or two of senior year, all of these friends of mine right. came out as gay, kind of like right. they kind of like got in a room together and said, right. we're coming out. <laughs> Forget right. this. We're coming out now. We've yeah. got a couple of months left. Right. And a lot of them were, were from the African-American community. Right. And were right. very, very deeply involved in in church choirs exactly. and all of that. Yeah. And coming yeah. out was a real risk for them. I did a little research on uh, Belle Glade. Yeah. And one of the, the very harrowing statistics right. was uh, the official unemployment rate in 2010, which was the last census. It is a bit old to be sure. Right. Um, official uh, unemployment rate was 15%. Wow. But the mayor said the actual unemployment rate is more like 40%. Mm -hmm. And 50% of the um, African American youth in Belglade uh, has been in prison. Yeah. Um, so the basic setup for life that you were given. Yes. Uh, tell me how you moved on from being in Belglade. 
it was so difficult. You know, it was so difficult. Religion, blackness, sexuality, all of those things that tend to oppress or trap, those kinds of things have never been addressed. If we didn't have people like teachers or community leaders that would set up a little baseball camp to take us to see the Mets when they came, because all the baseball team came to Palm Beach County for spring training. And that was one little way that as a boy growing up, I was exposed to liking baseball at an early age because I had the opportunity to join this little camp in the park and and the coach would take us. You know, those kind of little lights. And this is why your whole question about Black Lives Matter, it means so much because people in the community, certain people in the community have known all their lives, how important it is, the secret gifts of of charity to send us to camp or to send us on a trip to Washington, DC. I was a safety patrol in in third grade and it was only $75, but my mom couldn't afford to to send me to Washington, DC, but somebody secretly paid that money so that I could go to Washington, DC. It was just like these little lights along the way that say that there are people out there and this could be of any color, any race, who knows that life in general matters. But specifically for me, African-American life matters because I come from total devastation, total erosion, and most of the time, total death. I know many people that have had gifts and genius, and you know, they never had an opportunity to experience that because they're so beat down, they're so oppressed, they're so depressed. The beating down of the thousand sons of Florida has just devastated their very fiber of their lives. Mm. There's a moment where you're in the last year of high school yeah and your mom comes to you or or it's in the air what's the next step here robert i come from very 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 smart siblings you know my brother's phd he he i'm going to talk a little bit about him because his story is very significant to my legacy but you know i being the oldest knew that I was gonna to go to college for my brothers and sisters so that they would have that example. So I ended up going to college at Florida A&M in Tallahassee in the year. There was no question that I was gonna to go to college, but how I was gonna take this secret life, this oppressed, depressed half the time, suicidal life on the Tallahassee would change everything for me. Just like I said, this would be the first time that I experienced a gay club or gay people or somebody that was interested in me or how I looked because I always thought that I was a misfit. The guys in my neighborhood, they they weren't gonna hang with me. They weren't gonna be my friend. So I was mostly alone in my entire life. I could hear my mom's voice now, Robert, go outside. I bought you a bicycle, why won't you? But I was afraid. I was afraid because I knew I was gonna be ridiculed or, 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 or put down or beat down. And, and I couldn't tell her because if I told her, then that would lead to the next question. So I lived a life of secrets. Yeah. yeah. So you get to Tallahassee and finally the secrets can come out. Could come out there, but- yeah. still Well, obviously not still at home, right? Still hear them from her, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Still hear them from my, my grandmother, the evangelist. Still hear them from all the religious folks down, down south 
because I didn't want them to know that I was kind of coming of age, kind of finding myself, kind of figuring out that, okay, I can be this way. I'm not the only one in the world that like has this feeling on the inside. I thought it was a sin. I thought it was wrong to be this way. I thought that I should be like my uncles or, 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 or the people up the street that had a house full of children and a flatbed truck and a house with, a, with 10 pigs and a dog. You know what I'm saying? That's the way I thought that I should be. But no, my life was different. Robert, Thank this you. has been a wonderful discussion. Right. I, I want to I plug my book before we go, right? No, no question. In 2012, I published the first book by Three Rooms Press. It's called Close to the Tree. And in 2019, Poets Wear Prada Press out of Hoboken, New Jersey. My dear friend, Roxanne Hoffman, published this small chapbook of my graduate thesis called Flight. Thank you so much. You're in Florida. Mm -hmm. You're at this historically black university. What did you study at Tallahassee? I'm, I'm, History I'm, and African-American studies was my, my major. And I also, I went there in high school. I played the saxophone in the high school band. And so I went and joined the band in college. So I marched in the college band there, but my major was history. And, 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 and the world is so homophobic, you know? I experienced so much homophobia when I went to college that I, I couldn't even, I could, the dorm life was very difficult for me that I eventually had to move off campus. And, and again, all of this, all of these things, I couldn't tell my parents about it because one thing had to lead to another. And that was having this conversation that I had with her when I became 50 years old. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Here I am in college my first year and people locking me out of the dorm, you know, taking my underwear in, in the lockers, throwing them out the window, you know, turning the lights off, all kinds of, because they had heard that I was gay and I was on their floor and they didn't like it. So something pops into my head. This happens every now and then. A gay club in Tallahassee in 1982? Yes, one gay club. <laughs> okay, okay. One gay club in Tallahassee, Club Park Avenue, right downtown. But see, Tallahassee had two schools. Tallahassee had Florida A&M, and they had Florida State University, which was a big university. So of course, they were going to. There were there were lots of gay people in Tallahassee. Amazingly because there was two universities there, one black and one of the other color. You were extending the history yes. of, of your family going to historical black colleges. Right. Tallahassee, the tall hills of Tallahassee make up seven hills and Florida and them sits on the highest of those hills. Okay. But the state sits on a lesser, a lower hill. So it's kind of like Rome, right? The yes. seven hills of Rome. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's cool. That's a great, that's a great, I didn't realize comparison. I never, I, I, I didn't think about that. Thank you. Thank you. So you are finally able to start exploring your yes. sexuality yes. in a sense, because it's not like you can fall in love and find a boyfriend and bring them home and, exactly. and have them be a part of your whole life. You're still shutting that off. Right. When you said I was at the school studying African-American history. Uh-huh or Afro-American studies. Right. I was at City College at a, or in a similar time. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there was a very large movement in New York City at the time, uh, Professor Jeffries, very mm -hmm. famously. 
challenging all of these basic assumptions that white culture has about right. our culture, the culture that we all share. Right. Tell me a little about that. It was the psychology department that really started this role for me to be a history major. I took a class in called the psychology of racism and prejudice. We had the famous black psychologist, Naeem Akbar. He was at Florida State University. And these particular professors studied racism. They studied discrimination. They studied the history of oppression and, 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 and prejudice and all those kinds of things. And so I said, well, you know, I really don't want to major in psychology. So how about I move into the history department and challenge myself with, with African-American studies. Even before I realized who I was or who I was becoming, people would say, that's black right there. They would call me, that, that's the little nickname I had in the band, that's black, that's, the, that's his name, you know? So it was this kind of, this kind of calling about being a archivist or a historian of the, the history, even before I knew that this was the road that I was gonna walk down, yeah. You get your degree right. in African-American studies and right. history? Yes. What's the next step? The next step is I go back to Palm Beach County. I would like to share from close to the tree, tamarind. Tamarind is the color of my mother's womb. An oblong peninsula juts into the Caribbean ocean. It's the color of mango far as Lake Okeechobee. Call me Aunt Lily of the Valley. Call me Flood the Cemetery. Call me Kumquat. Call me Cherry and Lavender. Call me Aquamarine. Call me out at night before the fireflies light. It is the color of a birth canal. It's swampy. It's sawgrass. It's honey. It's molasses. Call me Uncle Sammy. Call me Tammy Amy Trail, call me Appalachian, and Manatee and Strawberry. Call me Wasissa, call me Wasissa the Pollen, the Honeybee, call me Elizabeth Bishop and Wallace Stevens, call me home, call me Zora, call me Hurston. She is still stillborn, jumping, jumping for the sun. Call me back to color, call me back to Florida, call me back to temperate, so simple. Call me Glades, call me Everglades, call me to the water where turtle eggs lie. Call Call me Sanibel, call me Naples, call me the city of orchids, the bridge over Singer Island, call me back, call me Palm, call me a beach bag, call me her port, call me Pahokee, call me Loxahatchee, call me the bell of the glades. From about the time I graduate from college to, the, to about 30 years old, I'm at home with my mom. I do start off substitute teaching, but then I get this very, very prestigious teaching position at the Burt Reynolds School in Palm Beach. It was a new school, a new magnet school. It was an art school for artistic kids and students from all over Palm Beach County could come, they, but they were selected. They, they were the biggest and the brightest of the county of Palm Beach County. So they would all come to this one little magnet school in downtown West Palm Beach. I so happened to be selected as um, one of the people in line for a position, a social studies teacher position at this school. And oh, the racism and the discrimination I went through to get that position. The administration waited to the last minute to tell me I was hired. So my mom being a teacher, knowing how to set it up, goes with me the weekend before school starts and helped me set up my classroom. 
set up my bulletin boards and all those things that were required. And then I want a teacher with 16 years of experience. I want a teacher with 20 years of experience. And on top of all of that, they give me six different preps. If you understand a first-year teacher, a first-year teacher shouldn't have no more than two preps. Maybe I'm teaching government or social studies. They give me government, anthropology, political science, just to wear me down. Yeah. <laughs> Roadblocks. Knock me my first year, never taught in a classroom before. And so, but they did what they did not realize is I had a mother that was a warrior. And she had taught for 35 years. You know what I'm saying? I do. She knew how to encourage me and show, show me how to just put the pieces together, how to organize myself as a teacher and make the lesson plans because that was the next challenge, you know, yep. getting all those lesson plans and then get them on time. Because if I didn't get them on time, that would be the next problem. Right. It will be another problem. He he's not organized. He can't get him on in on time. He can't he can't he can't handle this job. He can't be at this prestigious school. We don't want any African Americans at this school. You know what I'm saying? So to setting you up to fail. Yep. I and I was young. I'm a, was young. a, a white guy from a middle class uh, family. All the barriers that were put up for me, I put up myself. Yeah, but we survived it. And well, I I laud you. I mean that is. The fact that you see each of these challenges as something to take on and something to uh, engage and to overcome the adversity, that that is laudable. It wasn't easy, though, Chris. It wasn't easy for me, you know, because when I went back to Florida, that means I had to challenge the sexuality. Well, that means that I had to battle the religion. I had to battle the religious folk. And it, and it wasn't a, a physical battle. It was an emotional battle that one day I'm going to have to come clean yep. or I'm going to live a lie for the rest of my life. And yep. I decided that I would live the lie a little yep. bit longer until I heard from my, one of my good friends from college. He said, I'm living in DC. You want to come up and spend the summer with me? And that's how I ended up in DC. So I went and stayed with my friend Isaac for the summer and ended up in DC after teaching in, in Palm Beach County for at least three or four years after I graduated from college. And when I went to D.C., you know, D.C. is known as the chocolate city. I don't know if you knew that because it's predominantly African-American, but it has a large percentage of gay people in D.C. too, you know. And, you know, oftentimes I didn't realize how many gay men and women lived in the D.C. area. But when I when I came to D.C., I found out. So. So tell me what year you got to D.C. Because D.C. has has gone through a lot of change in the last 50 years. It had to be, and I'm not kind of, I'm not quite clear. I want to say 1998. Okay. Yeah, because I ended up living there 11 years. So, you know, and what mainly, because I was just going to come up for a summer trip and stay with Isaac for the summer, but the history kept me there, you know? The monuments, the statues, the uncovering of information, you know? And then I, you know, I scored a little social studies position in, in, in Maryland, and I became very popular and very good at what I did as a teacher, you know, because of all the struggles I had in Florida. So one thing led to another. So when I became the middle school teacher at Walker Mill Middle in Prince George's County, that led to the prestigious high school position in Fairfax County, Virginia that I had before I left the move to New York. So I, I mainly, when I first moved to DC, I had an awesome little part-time job as a docent 
in the capital of the United States, where I would give tours of the building for Congress. So the Senate side and the House of Representatives side. And that interests me because all of the Georgia marble and pink Tennessee marble and the 150 feet from the floor to the oculus of the dome and the rotunda and the, all of that kinds of stuff, you know, it excites a history major, you know, it, it excited me. So it was just like, wow, you know, one day I could even be the history historian of the Capitol or the historian of the White House or anything like that. But that job also had its issues. I love the story of being a docent. I love the story of your fascination with historical buildings and history because I share it. Yes. I go to Washington, D.C. and I am totally transported by the history and the weight of the history. This is not a happy history. Right, Right. it's not. When I look at the American flag, I am proudish of some of what we are and proud of the ideals that we strive for. Exactly. Exactly. But I am not at all proud of a lot of how we got here. Right. A quarter of me is English and Frederick West came over in 1735 and he bought himself a plot of land in North Carolina and a hundred slaves. And I have that in my history. There is no question that my story, it's very complicated. Yes. But it's not something I want to run away from. It's not something I want to deny was there. That's liberating within itself that you would even verbalize that because my grandmother, her last name was Hansford before she married. She told me this plantation was called, she gave it a name. I remember as a kid and she said, we live behind here. So she didn't realize she was just probably just passing down information, but she was building something in me, an urgency, something to encourage me that somebody has to remember this information because if no one records it, then it will be lost. It goes away. It goes away. One of the reasons I'm spending so much time on your story is I have friends and relatives who refuse to learn about the actual reality of systemic racism. They don't believe it exists. They actually don't believe it exists. Oh, it exists. I was one of four classmates in the constitution class. I was the number one student in that class. Hmm. And the other three gentlemen that were in the class were of the other color. All received full-time jobs, good government jobs to work for Congress at that time was known as a good government job. So we all wanted full-time positions. Robert, we only have a part-time job for you. We don't have any other positions. And I didn't know they had full-time jobs until I ran into them one day on the subway. And they said, they even knew, you know, who knew? I want to work in the Smithsonian too. Mm. I want to work in the White House too. I want to work in the Supreme Court too. As I taught in schools and I had this docentry background, I would encourage teachers 
to go to these spaces. They didn't know about the Robert Taft statue or the unknown soldiers or whatever. It, it was just, it's so much, it's overwhelming. But for as far as African-American people are concerned, I put together a group of teachers as per the principal. He said, well, you can take, you can take a group of teachers on a field trip. And so I put together a group of teachers and we were gonna go on a field trip because I had expansive knowledge of Capitol Hill. Many of these teachers of color grew up in DC and had never been to the White House, had never been to the Supreme Court, had never known the Robert Taft statue or never known where Adams Morgan was. So these kinds of things that there is a separation, there is a, a lack of access because these have traditionally been intimidating spaces. It's an idea about belonging here and ownership here, access here that has totally been denied. And that's why Black Life Matter, because there has been so much of this disappropriation going on through historically. That's wonderful that you were able to have this opportunity to, to share these people's own histories with them. And these are teachers. Yeah, right. But not that they didn't know it because I had spent so much time in those intimidating spaces. I was in high school when they started digging up the foundations of the new Police One Plaza exactly. downtown when they found the African-American burial. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. This fiction that the North was not into slavery and the fiction that the people who lived under slavery in New York City in colonial and early American times were treated better is debunked. Yeah. Just straight up debunked. So to pick up the story. Okay. You're in Washington, DC. I'm in Washington, DC. And you've been a docent and yeah. and, and and hit systemic racism yeah. and getting a full-time job there. Yes. Yeah. And had a great time. You've worked at a school in Virginia. Right. And then you got to New York City. Yes. And that was yeah. In the late 90s. I had been hearing stories. My mom had been reading poems about Langston Hughes and Harlem. And I was attracted to the whole Harlem Renaissance. And, um, you know, the just the very au revoir of, you know, coming to Harlem and, 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 and discovering the poets and the writers and the artists of, 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 of New York. That would be one of the highlights of my life. One summer, I received a position at Gonzaga All Boys Catholic School in Harlem. And that's how I ended here, on the request of a teacher. I had won a fellowship through the National Humanities Council for middle school social studies teachers at NYU on Frederick Douglass. And so I came up and I befriended this gay African-American teacher in the workshop. And he said, you know, well, me, I'm getting ready to retire from this all boys Catholic school in Harlem and I'm moving to Atlanta this year. And so I will recommend you to the principal because I like your personality and I like who you are. Well, he did just that. He went to the principal and recommended me before he moved to Atlanta and I got the job. And so that's how I ended up in Harlem. So it, was, it, was, it wasn't even a job application. It was through word of mouth. I said, oh, New York is, I'm already receiving gifts from New York. I'm, I'm, I came here this summer, past summer and next year I'll be able to teaching in New York City. So that's how I ended up in New York. And then I started joining the poetry because I had been writing since I was a kid. My mom encouraged journaling, but I didn't really realize there was some type of 
energy there to expand until I moved to New York and started going to the different poetry readings around the city and connecting to other poets and artists and writers and novelists. And they would tell me, well, you should go there. You should join this organization. You should, you should meet them. And, you, and this is the way, this was the whole glamor and connectedness of New York City that I love so much. The man I eventually married, he was also a writer and a poet. He grew up in a little place called Sherburn Falls, Massachusetts and graduated from Williams College. But we met in a, in a poetry reading um, in Brooklyn and, and we decided to meet and hang out, have coffee and eventually dating le led to one thing and then a relationship after that. Yeah, yeah. You were married with Robert for yeah. 10 years? It didn't happen like that. Oh, <laughs> it didn't happen well, tell like me, inform me. Robert had been in New York for at least 25 years. And he was a very liberated man, a very wonderful man, a very gifted artist. He was a painter too, but we didn't, we didn't, we dated. And then eventually I did move in, in with him eventually, but we didn't marry. All along, Robert had cancer. And so he, he was informing me along the way that that he had this sickness and that I should prepare for it. This was after maybe four or five years of, of, of being together as partners. He said, you need to get yourself together for this. Never could get myself together. But other than uh, beyond him exposing me to the larger United States of taking, taking me to Portland and taking me you know, up to Massachusetts and meeting his family, I'm still in secret. I'm still hiding. My family. From your family. My family knew nothing yeah. about Robert, yeah. you know, but Robert's family knew everything about me. I knew all of his sisters and brothers, all of his, 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 his siblings, his nephews and nieces. I had been down to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, I had been up to Sheridan Falls, had been every, went on trips, but I kept that secret until the end, a month before he died. So what happened a month before he passed? He passed away in February of 2015, a, a week before his birthday in February. But we take this honeymoon finally in January of that year, 2015. He specifically wanted to go. I didn't want to go, but the nurse said that I could not take Robert away from a vacation from his death. If he wants to go to Miami and, and celebrate this, because he already knew he didn't have much more, much more time. So if he wants to go to Miami and celebrate vacation away from your death, then you must go with him and you must celebrate along with him. We do just that. And also he wanted me to have this dialogue with my parents. He wanted, that was a great gift that Robert left me. He left me this idea about telling your truth. And my mother sat on Miami beach and cried before me because she was like, how dare I think that she would judge me. How dare you keep this secret? How dare you suffer all these years inside? Robert was up to 19 pills by that time. I was suffering, trying to hide this, all of this pain by myself. And my mother and my brother came because they were worried. My sister's in Nashville and I had a sister in, in Tennessee. They were all worried about why was I coming to Florida and what did I have to tell? Because I told them that I need to meet you in Miami Beach. I have something to tell you. But and I they can't thought you were sick. They thought I was sick. Yeah. And they were freaking out. Yeah. And um, 
So I get them down to the famous Betsy Hotel because Robert went all out. We had first class <laughs> services on Delta Airline and we also stayed at the famous Betsy Hotel for Artists and Poets on Miami Beach. So he wanted to do it like that. We moved into the Betsy for two weeks. We got a big bungalow on the top floor. My mom and my brother comes down from Belglade all the way down. Now, you know, that was a big deal. (laughs) That was a big deal for them. They come all the way down to South Beach to visit her child because she didn't know what was going on. And she came down. And so I began to detail the story that here I am 50 years old. And I can't tell you my truth. I, I, I've been living a lie all these years. I can't tell you who I am. And she began to non-judge me. She began to tell me that she loved me regardless. She, no matter what I'm going through, I'm still her child, I'm sorry. That why did I have to live like this? Why did I have to keep this secret from from her all these years that she and my brother, they would support me no matter what I'm dealing with, that I had a family that loved me for who I am, that treasures and honors my creativity and what I do in the world and how I place it in the world. And so it was a, it took me 50 years to tell my truth, Chris. It took me 50 years. And it took your, your wonderful husband to force you into this confrontation. And when you told me the story originally, I, I lost it too. It's a beautiful story. And my brother said this, he said, we always knew. Yeah. We respected your privacy. That's it. Yeah. We weren't judging he, you. He said, we weren't judging you. He yeah. said, we always knew. Yeah. We always loved you. How could you not? That's beautiful. Has that moment opened a door to a new relationship with your family? Yes. Yeah. How are you doing, Robert? Who's in your life? How are you doing? Are you seeing somebody? Are you dating some? Those kinds of questions I never had with yeah. ever. Now I have opened the door of the private hole that I was living in. And now they can ask and, 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 and feel comfortable about it because I had blocked, I had this big barricade, very defensive, very angry, you know, for many reasons, religion, blackness, southernness, all of those kinds of things make you this way because you're trying to just survive it all survive the energy the 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 ugly energy of of that can sometimes comes your way from growing it up where i grew up my brother was an athlete he played he played college football and he always said as a kid i'm going to be principal of that middle school years and years of my mom encouraging and discouraging him palm beach county is very discriminatory when it comes to moving people of color into the ministry. Carl went and got his PhD, and now he is principal of that middle school. There you go. That's been his lifelong dream to be principal of that middle school, but he is principal of that middle school now. I had a wonderful opportunity to go to Oregon and really experience the expanse of nature. So this is built upon the premise of 
my love for history and nature and that, that you, thank you, Chris, you evoke some of those feelings in me. So I want to just share this piece called Kingdom of Land, Sea and Sky. Only one picture reminds me of what I just left. For a few days now, the time will change to order back to the East, the show business of the empire. I will return back to the didactic, the refractive light that sun can't break through on Times Square, the buildings that tower, the air they occupy us, owning us with their dominance and their prominence possessing a few and consuming some of their dreams. But I though imagine the landscape of New Amsterdam before the arrival of the Dutch and all others who claim sovereignty and seniority like the time of the beavers of Turtle Island and the blocks of Clinton castles, maps were not drawn by cartographers. And it was the native, it was the native instinct of the Iroquois nation or the Shinnecock before Washington made his great sojourn up the Delaware. I had a chance to witness Hood and the Helens of the West and the discoverable places and even this present time to witness a sandstorm off the forest, off the Pacific city with enormous width and breadth of the barks of the Grecian and Douglas fir. No wonder Thomas Jefferson sequestered Lewis and Clark and his famous assistant York to travel by keel boat up the Mississippi, lands of accomplished beauty, the kind with fortitude when breathing in the clouds at noon, rising to the sound of the osprey or the long-billed murelet. It makes us feel differently about the way we think and live, the way we take for granted the natural, more than us, they are more beautiful and more ancient. Imagine counting the rings in the bottom of the redwood. Much of the forest has been cut back. It has been commercialized, but there is still enough vista point looking down so far and it's all river and mountain and cloud until the dissolving of the haze. And all I could do was journal like Lewis and Clark, like Catlin, like O'Keefe, like Robert Colescott. I had never seen the big feet of Lincoln as big as an Oregon oak, the breathtaking beauty allays the fast pace. And in the words of Mark Twain, I am the American. Beautiful. So that's my poem, land of, big land of kingdom, land and sky. So I'm gonna throw a little curveball in, just a okay. little side. Right. Um, very famously, Spike Lee made a movie called School Days, yep. which investigated the tensions between two parts of the African-American community, yeah. The, yeah. the lighter yep. skin, the lighter complexion, and right. the darker complexion. And that movie came out while you were in college. That's or right. Slow, right. My mom had five kids, and we are all different shades and different colors. That particular situation is said to come from the plantation. It's called the field slave versus the house slave. And so the house slave had more privilege because they were lighter or they were more closer to the, the, the plantation owner and the darker skin of my complexion would be work in the field. And, and we saw that not only in, 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 in sororities and fraternities, but we saw them in, in, in jobs and situations. A good friend of mine, 
who was a lighter skinned brother, he said, Robert, if I was darker skinned, no one in Louisiana would respect me. He became vice president of Florida and he was a good friend of mine. Good, we grew up in Florida together in, in Belgrade, and he went on and got his PhD from Washington State University, and he became vice president of Florida and University. And not only that, then after he moved on his journey, he ended up at a college in Louisiana. But he told me this one time in, in, in private, he said, you know, if I was a dark-skinned brother, none of these people would respect me as a vice president. I would have to fight dog and scrap for what I get here. And it's because of this type of oppression that exists within the African-American community. And this is where Spike Lee shed light on this situation that goes on in African-American community, even to today, even in, in, in businesses and, and churches and societies and, and associations, this situation still happens. Yeah. Right. This, this has not been, been expunged from the general African-American culture even though it was imposed very much by the institution of slavery. The professor at the Museum of Injustice stood up and said, why does Angola have so many problems? They have the money, is what she said. They have the money. They have the resources for sure. And so when she said that, it, it, it okay, they have the money, but we are not talking about the money, we're talking about 400 years of psychological damage. Yeah. We're talking about the lynching that Charles Carter G. Woodson, the father of black history is talking about. We're talking about the psychological damage of a generation that Naeem Akbar, the famous black psychologist tells us that, you know, trauma is passed down through the generations. It goes through the bloodline like, like addiction, like anything else. So if your grandmother experienced trauma, then the mother experienced trauma, the children certainly will experience trauma. Modern research into epigenetics is, is backing that up and exactly. how epigenetics play into exactly. the history of oppression. The most recent information we have, there are genetic changes that are taken on by the person who is going to procreate that can be passed down. I've lost so many friends from HIV, from, from, from alcoholism, from drug addiction. And this is because these people could not really tell the truth. They had to lie. Yeah. They had to lie about their blackness and the way they felt, or they were religious, or they were, they were gay and they couldn't tell people. It all goes back to this. It go, all goes back to that saying, I cannot liberate myself. I cannot tell you who I am. And I participated. I was afraid. I was afraid of being disowned by my family, by my church, by people that I knew in my community. I was afraid. Yeah. Chris, I was afraid. And that's why I decided that one day, maybe if I just take a razor blade and just cut the gay blood out of me, maybe I could be straight. Maybe I could have children. You know, I just, I wanted to do that. I wanted to cut the blood out of my body, you know, and this is the psychological damage and the psychological trauma. And oftentimes, like I remember I lived in DC and they just released a, a group of people from St. Elizabeth Hospital, just released them to the streets. Yep. I don't know if you recall that. I do very much so. That was uh, 1980. Uh, yeah. There was the uh, 
President Reagan repealing yes. the mental health provisions yes. that Carter had put in place. Yes. And I remember very clearly because I was living in New York City at the time. I was in high school. I was a sophomore in high school. And there were a couple of articles that had come out in the papers about atrocious conditions at mental health hospitals. Yes. I think it was a setup. I th I'm sure there were horrible things happening in mental health hospitals. Yes. But the solution was to defund them all and kick everyone on the street. Yeah. And overnight, we went from having a moderate homeless problem in New York City to having 40,000 mental health people who were now homeless. There you go. There and you. that was my experience in New York City. I have no right. idea what it was like in Washington, D.C., but I can't imagine it was that different. It's just as bad, just as bad. And obviously... A lot of the people who were in the public mental health hospitals were people of lower classes or people who didn't have access to expensive doctors and expensive hospitals and expensive medicines. Mm -hmm. And so they were often people of color or, or poor people of, yeah. in general. Walking the streets of yep. Washington, D.C., yep. you know, with no resources, with no help, with no access with no information and, and and this is this brings me to right now the time that we're living in you know the time that we're living in you know i am a big lover of the library and now that the libraries are closed down imagine the lack of access for a certain group of people yeah you know who those people are yeah. you know some people need the library they need it for so many things more than just going to check out a book. You know, that's the whole thing. I'm going to the library to check out a book. No, the library is a community function for no. some people. They no. need it. And so those are the kind of things we're, we're looking at, too, at this present moment, that there is such a lack of access right now. I just want to put this as a side note. There has been a recent spike in, in hate crimes in the Belgley area. I was just speaking with people today, this morning on the phone. There's been a killing of a transgender down there. There's been killing of gay people in Belgley and Pokey just because a, a, a young man I heard was just set on fire because he was gay. Um, you know what I'm saying? So, and I said in New York, that's a hate crime. These things need to be addressed. The atmosphere of permission to do horrible things has never been greater in my lifetime. That's right. And so, the encouragement that these people are getting from yes. the top of our country exactly has real consequences and real victims. Never mind COVID yeah. and and the mistakes there. Just the the violence that's being allowed and justified. Right. This is a great segue into moving from talking about your personal history, which I think has a lot of lessons that we can take okay. about African-American, okay. gay, Southern right. culture and how that affected you and talk right. about the overarching topic that we're talking about today. Right. Why has it taken so long for black lives to matter? I think it has always mattered. I think that if we study the revolution the antebellum period, emancipation, reconstruction, even the early part of the, the 20th century, down 
down, down through the years to the civil rights movement and even to what they call post-racial and all these kinds of things, I think that there have always been allies and alliances and other group of people that have witnessed and cried out and tried to join in and make a cohesive change. But we lost John Lewis, you know what I'm saying? And what I mean by we lost John Lewis recently is that at a matter of time, things have to take place when that time has come, when that time has, it's just been exhausted and beat down and over overworked and we can no longer see any other way the time is now, it is right now. There's no more lying, no more cover up until we deal with this issue. I mean, African-American issue, until we stop lying about that, until we stop acting as if they don't exist. And this is all it's been, Chris. It has been a big fat ass lie from the very beginning of the revolution from Peter Salem to Phyllis Wheatley to Lucy Terry, all these people of color, poets and writers and revolutionaries, from Frederick Douglass from the very beginning, from all these people that have addressed this issue through their writing, through their art, through their music, through their song, through their jazz, their poetry, their rhythm and blues, whatever they have cried out to you. And yet you deny yep. every aspect of society even in re Reconstruction, when you hired the Senator Pinchback and Hiram Rebels and all of these people you put in Congress and you still lie, you still won't tell the truth about this little part. And this little part has grown. And that's what happened. You know how a little spot, a little blemish starts off and then it grows and it grows into this big, uncontrollable labyrinth. And here we are. Yeah. We see it now. Now we see it, it's always been there. And they've always been the Quakers and the Shakers and the Amish and the, and the Northerners and the, and the Drinking Gourd and the North Star and all of these kinds of things. And the abolitionists, William Lloyd Garrison, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Oh, we can name the names. No. But here we are, we have to deal with the lie. And that comes back to me because I held on to the lie for 50 years. We got to tell the truth. And until we deal with the truth, we're gonna implode, Chris. We're gonna implode. I am a, a compatibilist, as they call it. So a compatibilist is someone who believes that my, my truths should be compatible with what we see in the world around us. Yeah. And that is no longer what's going on. We have lots of people who are proud to hold up lies as truth yes. in order to maintain their membership in a group. Yes. And I have a number of people in my family, a cousin of mine who I have Facebook interactions with. Right. And she is a diehard Trump supporter. Mm -hmm. We watch the exact same presentation the president gives uh, a speech 
and I'll walk away with completely different information. Right. I will walk away criticizing what the president has said. And my cousin will get off and post on her Facebook. This is the greatest president the country has ever had. How can you not see that he is doing great work? And I agree we have to spread the truth. Yes. But we have to find a way to agree upon the truth in a way that's irrefutable. Right. I I say Black Lives Matter. My cousin says all lives matter. Blue lives matter. Right. And I say there are nuances here which you are unwilling to engage in. Right. And there was one friend of hers who said, well, who's this crazy liberal guy who keeps on posting on your comments? And she says, well, that's my crazy cousin from Vermont. Right. And he says, what kind of un-American BS is this? Right. And I was like, un-American? Well, that's a really interesting point because my position is that it's un-American to deny people the right to vote. It's un-American to deny people the constitutional rights to be free and enjoy life without persecution from the establishment, from police, from getting jobs. So where do we find this truth? How do we come to a place where we share this truth and how do we get that truth out there right that's a very good question chris i just want to go back to bell glade where i come from that segregated place that place that was divided by main street that still in 2020 is still divided and so no one would meet each other on the other side. You know what I'm saying? We went to separate schools. We've had separate clubs, separate societies, separate institutions, those kinds of things. Nobody would come on the other side to see or know anything about the other person or the other group. Therefore, I'm building these walls, I'm building these barriers, I'm building these fears, I'm building these inhibitions, I'm building these lies. I don't wanna deal with it because I've heard through the generations who you are. I've heard through the generations what you will do. And it might be true and it might be false, but I have not given myself permission to go beyond the stereotype, to go beyond the archetype. I haven't given myself permission to move outside of my comfort zone. That's one of the gifts that my mother gave me, you know? When you have a certain type of education, you're going to explore, you're going to investigate, you you want to know Ukrainian or, or Albanian. You want to know from all different walks of life around the world. And it's, it's very important to me. It's, it's, it's very important to me that I'm not just Black, says Langston Hughes, says James Baldwin. These are the kinds of things that they said. And these are the kinds of things, the friction that they went through of living in this country. Bayard Rustin, the father behind the civil rights, a gay black man, by the way, that they had these issues that people would not accept them for their their appeal, their, their, their openness to all people around the world. They see it as dangerous. Yes. They see it as threatening the status quo, which they depend upon. 
the Black Lives Matter movement was actually started by a trans woman. Right. So a lot of people in the Black Lives Matter movement who are pro-LGBTQ+, right. recognize that every time. Yes. And call it out. Right. I know lots of transgender, beautiful people. And that's one particular area, again, that has to be dealt with. We talk about Black men being killed and Black women being killed. But transgender, that's a whole nother set of statistics that we will not deal with. And I mean, it was not until I went to the Trans Day of Remembrance where they had all, we made makeshift altars and we walked down the streets of Harlem holding all these names of transgender people around the country being murdered, you know? And it's not just one or two people. There are 30 and 40 in this city and 50 in that it's overwhelming at the amount of death that goes on in the transgender community. I've written some poems in the past about them. I don't, unfortunately, I don't have any with me, but I do know and I do ally along with the transgender community. The transgender movement is a difficult movement for it just is. about anybody who is not a part of it or if influenced by it yes. or affected by it right. to come to terms with. Right. It's very easy not to right. dive into the reasons mm -hmm. that trans rights are, are important. Right. I have a trans teenager. The second that I found out that my child was having these thoughts, yeah. offered them mental health help in order to dive in and not someone who was programming them to say I'm not this person but someone to explore the actual right. questions and the feelings I still have deep-seated problems dealing with pronouns I don't do it on purpose right but it still happens I misgender my own son I misgender friends of mine right the Black Lives Matter movement yeah. is itself fractured in a sense yeah. around the trans question. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And yeah. some people are saying, we have enough to worry about just with the Black Lives Matter without bringing in the question of trans or gay or any right. kind of queer rights. What's your answer to people who say, let's get this one thing fixed first and then we'll worry about the gay trans thing? Well, I, I feel as all, all gay black men or gay black women probably feel that we are part of the community too. And so this situation is just as intricately involved as the larger issue they're trying to claim Black Lives Matter. I mean, this is a part of that problem, that little thing that's growing, that little thing that will grow and grow until it's uncontrollable. And here we are. It's uncontrollable because we will not deal with the lies and the stereotypes and the fear and the hate and the division and, and then this and that, even within our own community. We have to deal with those, whether it starts off in a small way of addressing it alongside that issue 
that there are millions and millions of African-American, I'm, I'm saying millions of African-American men in Florida that cannot vote. You know what I'm saying? Because they have been imprisoned and they have been marginalized and they have been cut off to society. And imagine out of all those millions of African-American men that have been in prison are gay. You know what I'm saying? Let's deal with it. Yep. Let's deal with that issue. You know, and we, we can really think about the pain that some of our recent stories that are coming out now, this is true pain, true fear, true afraid of being disowned and looked down on because that person can't really tell who he really is to a certain group of people. And it's a, it's a, it's a problem. It's a big problem. Yeah. No matter how much talking about it's a small one apart of the community. No, it's just as big as is that problem. Yeah. So let's deal with it. And and the religiosity. Yes. And the, yes. the 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 feeling of justification in treating the rights of others as right. less important because you feel you're right because of your belief. Right. And getting that support from the guy next to you saying, You're right. right. This is goes against my belief too. Right. Yep. My uncle passed away and he had 26 children, but he's a man. The father, all those children and, and, and say he's a man. He has a right. He's justified to have 26 children from five different women. No, it's not right. But you gay this, that, this, that, this, that. No, you can't do that. Do you yep. see what I'm saying? I do. <laughs> I think we can take Bell Glade as a surrogate for the country at large. Yes. I think looking at the history of Belglade. Yes. The segregation in Belglade. Yes. The depth of the religious belief and yes. how that causes the perfectly nice people to do pretty unthinkable things to their friends and neighbors. Right. I think right. it's a very interesting point. And certainly I want to, I just want to make a point just in case somehow this, this segment ends up in the hands of some people in Bell Glade and they get upset with me that I'm speaking my truth. And, and I'm certainly, I'm the native son of Bell Glade and I love where I'm from, but this is not only a liberation for me, but it's a liberation for all that 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 has gone through the same thing that I've gone through. This is a yeah. this is an opening. This is a door. This is a beginning of the end. You know, this is this is where we need to start talking about it. So we're making history just with the cold conversation of you talking to a, a gay black man from Belle Glade, Florida, about the situation that's going on and that's always going on there. It has never been done in history. I love making history with you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to know what you would propose as a way forward to keep the Black Lives Matter movement actual and keep the change moving on. I want to read a poem first. A miracle happened during the pandemic. What is a miracle? An open door in nature, 
in what distant deep, in what motivation is this, the artifact as old as me to be curious as bam bamboo, Whitman, Rumi, Ida B. Wells, to be a water wheel, to be a gristmill, the risky travail of not being too academic. A miracle can be like a chemist with a melange of sound. I can hear Ted Andrews in the morning, his way of being phonetic. If the clouds are gather, then it's going to be rain. A miracle has to be if we sit and work. And if it's not authentic because of my own molecular stru structure, Tiger Tiger shining bright says Blake. I'm working on me this Saturday, working on me January through December in October's October. I'm working on me says Blake. A bird fell. Some sound happened in the middle of my block. A bird had fallen from the sky and someone had rescued it before it died. I thought it to be a movie set or next door, the house full of children cruising the street with a baby stroller, an overcoat or quilted blanket in search of the gigantic. And the world is on edge. Only a small bird had fallen from the sky, its head contorted, a gravitational pull of its weight, the fuselage of its body manacled to the cement. And I went to hear the commotion to add my person to the, co the motion, the loud display of concern. And I thought I did not have the earn, I did not earn the right each morning to swim in my own filth with the limbless and the feeble and the needy to disown and change to spend the night naked as a tree lamb, not a metaphorical, only emotional, the night to breathe or succeed. And there's negativity to project my insecurity on the pure wind. So it began, maybe it just comes down to sound or a sign or a signal or a light post. Wherever hope is, wherever charity is, my threadbare self from the accoutrement or minutia, a bird has failed. And because of it, there is hell. There's a climatological paradigm shift, maybe a rift between sea and sky, a slim margin of possibility. I could not imagine in our time, we would have a reign of locusts, but I try to refocus on the good and migrate back to where peace is and release where belief is. The sudden wind came and then this, the man said, the bird can be saved. And so I believe in just that, Chris. I believe that there's an energy in this moment. Even in this pandemic moment, People are recognizing it's just the right time. It's just the right moment. It's just the right sign. It's just the right climatological shift in California, in Alaska, in New Mexico. And there's, it's just the right time. And so we're recognizing I'd rather live than die. I'd rather work together than divide, than segregate.
So yes, there's work to be done. There are demons and devils and all of this out there in the world, but there's good too. There's alliances. There are people of all different races and backgrounds that are working. They're essential people. There are, there are people out there in the world that are fighting this enemy that exists. And so I wanna say to you, Chris, I think that you brought some good energy in me today and I appreciate it. I have not felt like this, that I can be a warrior with me. When I sat there and saw that bird fall from the sky, did I recognize that there are many fallen birds, there are many fallen people, that there are gonna be somebody that's gonna help us along the way. And so this is where I'm leaving it with myself and to the people that are hearing my voice, change has to start with me. I have to tell the truth in order to liberate others. If I can't tell the truth to myself, then I can't tell the truth at all. We've been living in a, a world where breaking news is every minute, where the hype is 100% all the time. Yes. Where there are no calm moments for reflection and discussion. You're just waiting for the next hit. But we don't know how many people are dead, do we, Chris? No. We don't know how many people have died, do we, Chris? Nope. We don't even know the statistics, do we, Chris? Yeah. We know some statistics. We don't know the, how accurate those statistics are, depending on who's saying it. But I know that I cannot rest without putting my voice out there. That's what this project is all about, is trying to get our voice out there. And I'm seeing the name Bell Glade for the first time in a new light. Because it's the it's the French spelling of bell. It means beautiful glade. Yes, right. And it's a mockery of its own name the way it yes. is now and the way it has been. Yes. But it can be turned into a beautiful glade. Right. It's always been one of the highlights of my life that I thought that maybe I could go down and start a museum, build some type of cultural monument for the people I know, for the essential workers, for the the people that have just built, helped build this nation through the sugar industry, through, through the agriculture, some kind of something that I could do, somebody that can help where I come from, just give them a little hope, a little hope, a little help would just make things change a little bit. And, and those people will say, wow, the world really can change. In order to think that you can do what you think is right, that you know is right, but are afraid to do it, you just need to see that someone else had the courage to do it in front of you and you can get that courage. I agree completely. Well, Robert, thank this you. has been a wonderful discussion. Right. I wanna thank you so much for taking thank the you. time out. I'm, I don't wanna stop. We've been talking for almost three hours yes. and I, I could talk for another three. Me too, me too. You're a wonderful guest. Thank you. And I don't think this is the last time that we're gonna be talking okay. on, in this platform. Right. And certainly not in life. Right. So I wanted to thank you for, for joining us. I wanna also thank 
our tech crew, Robin, in the background doing all the work. And we're going to give Robert another opportunity to give us one more poem. Okay. I want to thank you so much. And I look forward to working with you on making the whole world a better Bell Glade. Thank you. Thank you. In 2012, I published the first book by Three Rooms Press. It's called Close to the Tree. And in 2019, Poets Wear Prada Press out of Hoboken, New Jersey. My dear friend, Roxanne Hoffman, published this small chapbook of my graduate thesis called Flight. And I'm just going to read one poem out of Flight called Sestina. It's only an hour until I board. I want to get there to the other end to make Pacific time. There it is above me, my longitude and latitude packed. My bags, I'm tagged like a tat as I sit between unknown people. Some too big because I want the Tacoma sun. I want the red of mestizo brick, the pinpricked sun of Sitka spruce and to follow the river there when I touch down on Walla Walla, big corner of the universe. A burst that is fog and lighthouse, not smog that sits as in a skyscraper, but tapers the evergreen, packed while salmon snake up river, packed with the Wishram man and his papoose. The sun make me loses my nativism as I sit like a caboose. I want to see oddities there. Antiquities as bleak as the forest is, pick cherries in the Draper Valley, big bowl women ride yellow bicycles, big gourmet trucks make me not rush, not a packed subway train, but the smell of rain is there in the state of Oregon in Sun River when I touch down on Walla Walla. And there is Georgia O'Keeffe to follow, Cole's cow skull sit from 1933. I wanna be as old as gold, sit like a tumbleweed, the color of Mardi Gras, big as Lincoln's Oregon Oak. I wanna find N.C. Wyeth there and Robert Cole Scott when I touch down, packed with kayak on the Willamette River, forage me son when I commune with the octopus tree as sacred as time is, convince me that to be transcontinental is to be traveled as the railroad. I want to sit as a carpet bagger, a swagger of tonic. The sun is fresh, given big nest of earth, freshly packed my moon river, finally made it there. Yes, I finally made it there. Thank you, Chris, for having Beautiful. me. Thank you so much. Uh, I just want to let everybody know that there are links to a couple of Robert's poems that are on YouTube and we'll have uh, the names of the books that he just put up. Those will be under the comments and more information on the YouTube channel. Thank you. Thank you again. This is Chris West West for When Humanists Attack. Thank you. And this is part two of our series why is it taking so long for Black Lives to Matter? Thank you. Wow. Hey.